0: Alright, if you have your Bible, open it up to Philippians chapter 1. If you'll stand, I'm going to invite Emily Bird uh, to come up here and read our passage this morning. Um, And she's going to read Philippians 1, verses 12 through 18. Ready?
1: Good morning, church. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for defense of the gospel." The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does that matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice.
0: Thank you, Emily. Let's give her a hand as she uh, takes her seat, and uh, let's pray um, for our morning. Uh, Father, we're grateful for your word, and uh, God, we pray that it would go forth, um, that it would be illumined to us by your spirit, God, that it would work in power in our hearts, God, that it would um, call people who are dead to new life, and God, that it would um, conform people um, who are already saved, God, your children, that it would conform us to the image of your son. God, make us more like Jesus as you chip away uh, yet again by your word and through your word at our sin, at our pride, at our selfishness, God, at our wandering hearts. Um, God, we're grateful that um, yet all of those things are true. Um, your grace um, abounds all the more. Uh, Father, you tell us where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So, God, we're grateful that we can approach your throne with boldness. God, not because of anything that we've done, but because we've been granted access by our great high priest who is Christ, um, who's given us access to the throne uh, to run boldly and to seek you. So, God, I pray that you would um, use our efforts um, God, it's not human effort or human skill or human speaking ability that will accomplish anything this morning. But you, you choose in your kindness to work through those things, but ultimately it's your spirit working in power by your word. Um, so God, we ask that um, you would increase and I would decrease and that we would um, behold you and your work um, in this passage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. so. What we're going to do is jump into verse 12, and if you're just joining us, um, we're actually looking at a letter that Paul wrote from prison in Rome, and most people would think that Paul would be, you know, worried about his life, worried about his outcome, he would be depressed, he would be sad. Um, Paul's actually, oh yeah, yeah, here I go, just running into it, holler at me, Uh, kids, you guys need to go and be taught this from other people. Um, so uh, if you 're K through second and you 're leaving, I knew that was going to happen at some point. i didn 't know it would be the third week that we were doing this. Um, thank you all, and please don't ever feel bad about uh, shouting me down. Um, our teachers are going to head out, and uh, our K through sixth grade are going to walk through this very pa- or second grade're going to walk through this same passage. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun over there. So, um, as I was saying, if you're just joining us, um, we dismiss the kids uh, when I start preaching so that they can go hear um, this same content just in an age-appropriate version. We've been walking through this letter. Paul's writing it from prison in Rome. Um, He was thrown in prison uh, for preaching the gospel. Uh, This church started, actually, the audience that he's writing to started because Paul was thrown in prison uh, for preaching the gospel. So Paul has a knack for being thrown in prison for the sake of the gospel and uh, gets a lot of ministry done while he's there, uh, believe it or not. And we're actually going to see that at work today. Um, But Paul's writing to his favorite church. Uh, At least my conclusion is he brags about them multiple times in 2 Corinthians and in Romans. Paul brags about the generosity of this church, the love of this church, the kindness of this church, that even in their poverty, they still um, give and sacrifice for the gospel to go forth. And the most frequent word other than Jesus in this letter is the word joy, that Paul is resounding with joy as he's in prison. And we argued last week that you can kind of pick up the lay of the land of the book if you look at the key verses in each chapter. There's four chapters in Philippians. Uh, The ultimate verse, kind of the chief verse of the whole book, is Philippians 1.21, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ, that my whole life is dedicated to Christ. And he says, and to die is gain, that I exist to know Christ, to make him known, that my joy comes from Christ, that my identity is rooted in Christ, that my purpose is found in Christ, that all of my life is focused on Christ. He's my life. That's chapter 1. And how do you live a life where Christ is your life? Chapter two, Paul's gonna say, you look back to Christ as your example. He says, have this mind of yours that is in Christ Jesus. Put on the same mind that Christ had. And what did he do? He was in the very nature of God, the same form of God, but he didn't count his equality with God something to be held onto, but he emptied himself. And he took on human flesh. It's fascinating that God's subtraction was by taking on the things that we have down here, right? Right? He decided to to leave the glory of heaven. He didn't give up his divinity. Paul makes that clear in Colossians multiple times. Jesus was fully God and fully man. But he emptied himself of all of the blessings and glory of heaven and took on human skin and was born in the likeness of men and humbled himself, was solely obedient to his father even to the point of death, dying on the cross for our sins as an innocent sacrifice so we look back to Christ, and how do you live a life that is for Christ and that our are, are minds set on Christ? We follow his example. But then we also are moving somewhere. So what does Paul say in chapter three? We press on towards the goal, which is who? Christ. Right? He's my life, he saved me, he's my example that I follow, and he's the goal that I'm running after. That I want to know him more. I want to share in his sufferings. I want to experience the power of his resurrection over and over again. That I want to follow him. He's my prize, he's my treasure. And what's gonna be the strength that gets me from here to there? Philippians 4, that I can do all things. I've learned to be content in all things through who? Through Christ, who strengthens me. He's my life, he's my example, he's my goal, and he's my strength to get me there. That's the beauty of this book. And Paul started um, telling this group how much he loves them, how grateful he is for them and their generosity towards him, that God began this work in him or in them, that he's going to be faithful to complete it, and he's going to finish it at the day of Christ Jesus when they're glorified and presented holy and blameless before the God of the universe. And now Paul's going to move into the content of the letter. But before we get into the content, I want to ask you, if you look at this verse, for me to live is Christ, what is your ultimate purpose in life? What is the reason that you exist? Why are you on the planet right now? What does God want for your life? And I know that question gets butchered all the time. But why do you exist? Paul's able to be shackled in prison and still has joy. Not wrestling with who he is, not wrestling with his identity, not wrestling with his circumstances, still has complete joy in prison. Paul opens this letter with Paul and Timothy and, and the, the phrase that he uses is servants of Christ. The, the, the definition of my life is servanthood to my Savior. So if you had to fill in this blank for me, to live is what? What would you put there? How would you answer that question? Or maybe even more interesting, how would your family answer that question for you? For me to live is what? What are you drawing your worth from? What are you drawing your value from? What do you get your purpose from? What makes life living for you? Is it your job? Is it money? A certain status? Earthly achievements and accolades? Is it athletics, teenagers? Is it a marital status? Is it being a parent one day? A painful way to wrestle with this question is what's the thing that if you got it taken from you you would feel you wouldn't feel any value or purpose or worth anymore. Like life wouldn't be worth living if this thing was taken away. You wouldn't have a reason to keep going. What if you were told you could never get that job? It wasn't going to happen. What if you were told that the job you currently have you don't have anymore? What if you were told that that sickness or that illness is never going to go away? What if you got injured and never got to play that sport again? What if you were told, hey, you're just never going to make that amount of money? Or you're never going to get married? Or you're told you could never have children? Would you be able to keep going? Would you be able to still make it? Paul is going to give us through this next section, I don't ask any of those questions to be depressing, But they're realities that we have to face. Where is my ultimate purpose and where does my, the deepest joys of my life, where do I draw them from? Because if you're like me, in the course of a week, I can draw it from a hundred different things. My heart wanders all the time. And the Lord will remove something from me or something will not go my way. I go, oh, wow, I was actually finding my happiness and my joy today from how I planned this thing to go or the comforts of this life, or the comforts of this world, or in some kind of thing that can't provide it for me, a relationship that can never fully and finally satisfy my soul. We talked about this immensely in the book of Ecclesiastes, that there's nothing under the sun that can ever ultimately and finally give you all satisfying worth and joy. And Paul's going to give us a crash course on why we have to, as the people of God, root our joy the deepest longings of our hearts and the deepest joys of our life not in circumstances not in anything under the sun but in Christ and Paul's going to transition to the body of the letter and look at what he says in verse 12 he says I want you to know brothers that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so Paul's saying hey I have so much joy right now because I exist why does he exist He's, he tells us in verse 21 for me to live is Christ that my life, the reason I'm here is to know Christ more every day and to make him known everywhere I can. And he says, I want you to know, I've got joy, why? Because me being in prison right now is actually helping that cause. What has actually happened, is this, this has happened, the, the reason I'm in prison has actually served to advance the gospel. What they thought would stop the spread of the gospel is actually doing the opposite. It's helping the spread of the gospel. It's pushing it forward, it's propelling it forward. We see this in Acts chapter 7. Stephen, one of the first deacons of the church, a man of good repute, good character, is appointed to serve the body in these tasks. And in Acts chapter 7, he's killed. And guess who approves of his death? Acts chapter 8, verse 1. The very guy who wrote this letter. Paul. Paul. Paul approved of Stephen's death before Paul met Christ in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen gets killed, and Paul is the one that says, yes, do it. And Paul's going to be the one. How amazing is the gospel that later on, when Paul would be killed for his faith, that Stephen would be waiting in heaven, cheering him on as he entered. The very man who approved of his death, embracing him and rejoicing with him, that both of them have found salvation in Christ. How cool is that? That's amazing. That's grace. It doesn't matter what you've done. There's grace in Jesus Christ. But Paul approves of Stephen's execution. And Paul thinks, hey, this is going to squash this movement. Like, other than Jesus, no one's died yet for this thing. So I'm going to kill this man, first martyr of the church, and then everybody is going to run, and this movement's going to stop. And what happens? Everybody does run for their lives, but then all across Asia Minor, all of these churches just start popping up. It's like when you kill the spider and all the babies go running everywhere, which is like a weird thing to think about. But that's what happens in Acts chapter 7. Hey, we're going to stomp the church and it's going to squash the movement and then all of a sudden Christians start scattering around the world and these little churches start popping up. And James actually writes his letter, the book of James, to all of these churches. He says to the 12 tribes, to Israel, in the dispersion. They took off running. They were dispersed because of Acts chapter 7. And James, one of the pastors in Jerusalem, starts writing to his people scattered across the region, encouraging them to hold fast to the truth. How cool is that? What's the other place where the world thought, hey, if we just kill this man, this movement will stop? The ultimate place, the cross. And what happened? It just propelled, it, it accomplished the mission, right? Right? It accomplished the mission of God the Son, Jesus, laying down his life to save sinners. Hey, if we just kill him and crucify him, then this whole thing will be behind us. And man, did it accomplish good news of great joy for all people. And we see this here. Paul says, I want you to know that, hey, that this, me being thrown in prison here in Rome has actually served to advance the gospel. Side note and I'm full of hard questions this morning for some reason, by God's grace, Um, if the Lord came to you and said, I want to use you in an incredible way. I want so many people to come to know me in the all-satisfying joy of knowing Christ, but it's going to require you going to jail. Would you be okay with it? Would I be okay with it? Would I give up my own personal freedoms and comforts So that others might know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've got to wrestle with that. And thankfully, you know, let's think realistic for a second. God doesn't require that for you to to be used by him, to share the gospel with others. But at the heart level, if he asked us to, in some places of the world, he is requiring that. As we talked about unreached people groups, we are about out-of-people groups who welcome visitors. The rest of the remaining people groups who have never heard the gospel are pretty hostile to it. The places where it's not going to have any adversity are pretty much reached. The only remaining ones are the ones that are hostile towards the gospel message. It's going to require people doing things that are under the sun, illegal in these foreign governments, like be a Christian and carry a Bible. It's going to require people going in and possibly getting thrown in prison, possibly giving their lives to this cause. But if God called me, I have to wrestle with this. Same question. To give up my freedoms and my house and my time with my family for the sake of others coming to know Christ, would I be okay with it? Paul in Romans chapter 9 and 10 says, I, and he's using hyperbole here. He doesn't actually want this. He says, I would rather myself be cut off if others can be brought in. And he doesn't literally mean that. He just means, I care so much about lost people coming to know Christ. That I myself would rather be accursed for the sake of these Jewish brothers who don't know Christ. That he longs for other people to know Christ. Why? Because for him to live is what? Christ. It's not earthly comforts. It's not to be a parent, although that's a great gift from the Lord. He doesn't call us to hate any of those things. It's not to be, you know, whatever your job is. That's a great thing that describes his life. And they're all good gifts from the Lord, but it doesn't define who he is. And what his identity is. And what his purpose is. Does that make sense? We're getting at the bottom of it. The root of your joy. The root of your purpose. The root of your identity. I've told the story a couple times. But in the 1950s, um, there was a missionary named Jim Elliott. And he and four of his friends went to this unreached tribe in Ecuador. Never heard the gospel before. Never heard it in their lives. And they decided that they were going to, to reach this unreached people group. And they grab a plane, they start learning. Essentially how you go and have to do missions is there's one kind of regional language in a lot of places, but then each tribe has their own dialect of the language. This is true in foreign missions today, that you learn kind of the the area language, but then any of these individual tribes that you go to, they have their own variation of the main language. So you Jim and his buddy start learning the language of this people group, the kind of the main area. But then they, their goal is to, to get close, to get to a neighboring village, to get somewhere nearby and be able to speak enough to where these people can understand. So they get in a plane and start flying around this village up in the air, shouting with megaphones and stuff, these, these kind sayings to this people group in the area language. Start dropping care packages to them. Start trying to show, hey, we are friendly people. Long story short, he and his buddies finally get the courage to land in this tribe. It's the Waorani tribe in Ecuador in 1955. They make contact, and it, the story ends with every single one of them being killed on the beach when they landed at this tribe. And obviously, the Christian world in America hears about this, and Life Magazine wrote this article about how sad it is that Christians would waste their life Going to these other places and, and laying down their lives for the sake of people hearing the gospel. And Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth Elliot, wrote back to Life magazine and quoted his own journal. And the quote is, He is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. She said, No, it's not actually sad, and it's not actually a waste. That my husband gave the thing that he cannot keep. Life here on this earth. None of us can keep it. Right? It's going to end soon. To gain that which he cannot lose. Which is so that other people might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be in heaven forever. And fast forward 10 to 15 years. The wives of these men start going back with the help of other men. And the whole tribe, by and large gets to hear the good news of the gospel and put their faith in Jesus Christ. His life was not wasted. His blood was not wasted. He heard the call of the Lord. He resolved in his mind that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I get Christ if this ends badly for me under the sun. He knew he had nothing to lose. He is no fool who gives the very things he can't keep to gain the very thing that he can't lose. Amen? It's beautiful to think about. And Paul says, I want you to know that what's happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Verse 13, so that, here's the result, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Hey, everybody here knows why I'm here. Nobody thinks it's because I stole something. Nobody thinks it's because I talked back to anybody. They know that I'm put here because I love Jesus and I'm preaching Jesus. So everybody's talking about Jesus, Everybody's asking me about Jesus. Everybody's noticing my joy in the midst of prison for Jesus. It's the same reason the Philippian church was planted. Paul's thrown in prison and he and Silas are singing hymns in the middle of the night while they're locked up and everyone's going, who are these guys? Why are they happy? You know, it's Michael Scott in the office. Why are you the way that you are, right? Why do they have this joy that none of us have? And the earthquake happens and scripture says that Not only did Paul and Silas stay there, but all the other prisoners stayed with them. Like, hey, I don't know what's happening right now. We're in the middle of the earthquake, but I'm staying with the guys who aren't afraid of being thrown in prison. I'm staying with the guys who sing in the middle of earthquakes. Like, I don't know what our plan is, but I'm gonna stick close to these guys because they seem to understand something that I don't. And Paul says, hey, everybody in prison throughout the whole Imperial Guard and to all the rest, now know that my imprisonment is for Christ. Here's the principle, and here's the lesson. If your reason, if for you to live is anything under the sun, if your purpose, if your identity, is rooted in anything that's circumstantial, then you can lose it with a change of circumstances. You can lose it in a moment, teenagers. If you are finding your identity from playing a sport, sports are great. They're great gifts from the Lord. But if how you play in this game defines who you are, that's dangerous. Because you're not going to play great every game. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? Not just that you play bad, that you get injured. Right? We see this in professional athletes all the time. They don't just play a game to get a paycheck, to have a living. They end up finding, that the sport defines who they are. It's their identity. It's their purpose. It's the only place that their joy comes from. And one injury takes it all away. And the depression rate, suicide rate, and professional sports, especially those that have retired, is significantly higher than anywhere else. Why? Because you didn't just take away the thing that I did to make money. You took away my reason for living. Does that make sense? What's the worst thing that can happen to an athlete? They turn 30, Right? Then you can't do what you used to do, and you can't play. And I didn't just walk away from a sport. I walked away from my reason for existing. Kids, students, that's dangerous. And it doesn't just happen in sports. You can find it in your performance at school. If your identity comes from, hey, I'm an A student, that's it. I only make A's. That's where my worth comes from. That's where my value comes from. And you make a B. You forget your homework one night and you have a teacher that's not really big on grace and says, I'm sorry, you get an F, right? Some of you just got nightmares thinking about that. Like, like some of you are in your 30s and you go, I still have dreams about that, of showing up to school and the teacher's telling me I got a zero on something, right? Why? I, we saw this in 2008 when the housing market crashed. We saw this years before that when Enron went belly up. People literally jumping out of buildings. Why? Because I didn't just lose my money. My money is where I found my value. It's where I found my ultimate purpose. That I drove this kind of car and I wore this kind of suit and I went to this kind of job and I, you know, had this many people under me. And that's what made me who I was. And I lost it in a moment. And I didn't just lose my circumstance, I lost my reason for existing. Imagine if Paul's joy was rooted in being a traveling missionary. That's true about Paul. He was. But that's not what his life was dedicated for. That's not where his ultimate purpose came from. His ultimate joy came from knowing Christ. But imagine if his heart wandered and he starts finding his identity and being a traveling missionary, the worst thing you can do is lock him up. And the book of Philippians would be, guys, somebody's got to get me out of here tomorrow. Like, I don't know if I can make it another week. Who is Paul anyway? Like, I don't don't feel like I'm living out my purpose. Why? Because my circumstances changed. But Paul's joy was rooted in something so much greater than his circumstances. Paul's ultimate joy was rooted in the God who governs all circumstances. You've got to root your joy in something so much greater than earthly circumstances. Because they will change. Regularly. Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time for everything under the sun. If you plan on things not changing in your life, good luck. Right? The Lord gives and he takes away. He leads us into different seasons of our lives. It's the nature of life under the sun. Don't root your worth and your identity and your joy and your value in something circumstantial. You can lose it at the moment that your circumstances change. It's why Paul was able to have joy in the midst of prison. Uh, anybody in here ever heard of Horatio Spafford? Horatio Spafford was a successful lawyer and real estate investor in Chicago back in the 1800s. Um, he was born in 1828. Um, he and his wife, Anna, had one son and four daughters, and they lived a life of you know, great means, lots of philanthropy and generosity, served their church well. And then in 1871... Um, they lost their four-year-old son to scarlet fever. And a few months later, um, the Great Chicago Fire wiped out the majority of all of their property. It starts to quickly look like the Book of Job. And they made it through the next two years. Got his daughters, lost his four-year-old son, lost all their property. And in 1873, tragedy struck again. And the Spaffords had planned to visit Europe as a family... And business kept Horatio back home, so wife and daughters took off to Europe. And on the voyage, um, their ship actually crashed, and their four daughters drowned in the ocean. And Horatio's back at home in Chicago, and he gets a telegram from his wife, and it has two words on it, and it says, saved alone. And you can only imagine what he's going through. Not being there, thinking through, how how do we wake up tomorrow? And his only option is, hey, I've got to get on a boat, and I've got to go meet my wife. And he's on a boat, headed to Europe, and he's literally in the ocean, looking at the rubble of the crash, And he takes out a piece of paper and a pen. And he starts writing. And he starts writing about life circumstances. And he says, when peace like a river attends my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, he says, whatever my lot, you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And he says, though Satan should buffet and though trials should come, Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And he's thinking about his helpless estate, and he says, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not part of my sin, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And the only thing a father can think to do in the wake of losing your children, he says, oh, Lord, haste the day, bring it quickly, When my faith shall be sight and the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound and the Lord shall descend, even so it is well with my soul. And it doesn't mean that he didn't think about the loss and weep and have sorrow. He had all of those things. But in the midst of his sorrow, he was still able to take an ounce of joy, not in his circumstances, but in the only place that hope can be found, in the only place that true joy can be found. He turned his gaze to the faithfulness of God in the midst of loss. And the God who overcame death and defeated death at the cross. That's the only place where you can find ultimate joy and ultimate hope. And the hymn doesn't diminish the loss or gloss over the pain. But it proclaims that God is faithful and we can have hope even in the midst of pain that we can have a joy greater than anything that this life could ever give you and anything that death could ever take from you. That's only found in Christ. One of the other things, and then we'll look at the next two pieces next week, he says this, verse 14, he says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So he says, hey, here's the deal. Now that I'm in prison, other people are growing in their confidence. Right? It's this... Next man up mentality. The gospel's going forth, and he says this in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. What's Paul talking about here? He says that some people are showing up, and they're preaching Christ from goodwill. They go, oh, my goodness. Paul had a ministry. He was well-known. He was bold. He was sharing the gospel. He's locked up. Somebody else has got to jump in. Next man up. The man goes into the ground, not in Paul's case, but just in reality. The man goes into the ground, but the message goes on. This is why we don't build ministries and churches around a man because the man's going to go into the ground and the message is so much greater than the man. And Paul's looking around and says, some of these people are going, hey, next man up. This is Moses and Joshua. At the end of Deuteronomy, the beginning of the book of Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now go, Joshua, you're the next man up. Take the gospel, lead these people, shepherd them, care for them, and take off. You see Paul rejoicing. Hey, all of these people now saw an opportunity and now they're bold. Hey, I stepped out of that ministry for a season and by God's grace and his sovereignty, other people jumped in. That's a great thing. If the Lord calls you to another ministry, don't not obey because you're afraid that he's not gonna provide someone to take your spot over here. As he calls, listen. Because God's raising up other people who will see the need and go, hey, I can jump in and be bold just like He was. And I can continue to carry this thing. And Paul's rejoicing at that, but then he says this He says, um, <clears throat> Some preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. So now you've got some other people that are preaching because they're looking at it from a prideful, prideful perspective, going, oh, look, Paul, he had a lot of glory, he had a lot of recognition he had a lot of fame. This is my chance to take it. This is my chance to be the leader. This is my chance to show up and be noticed. And you've got both. People preaching from good motives, people preaching from bad motives. He says this in verse 16, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel, right? Those with good motives are doing it because they love me and they know that I'm here for the sake of the gospel. Verse 17, He says, the former, these people preaching from selfish motives, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And what he's saying here, and this is so true for all of us, that if you are finding your worth and your value and your ultimate joy under the sun, one of the greatest things that can happen to depress you, and derail that from you, one of the greatest threats to you is the success of others. If your identity and your joy is found in something under the sun, hey, my joy is to be married one day. My joy is the success of my kids. The greatest threat to you is the success of someone else's other kids. If you're finding your identity and your performance at work and trying to get that promotion and work your way up the ladder, the greatest threat to you is somebody else taking that position above you and not you. If you're finding your worth and your joy, my, my all-satisfying joy is to be a parent one day, then the worst thing that can happen to you is someone else puts a pregnancy announcement online. Right? And Paul says that other people, imagine if Paul's joy was found in being the missionary. This letter would look a lot different. But what does he say? No, for me to live is Christ. And if other people are preaching Christ, great. My, my, Joy is not being in the microphone and being the guy. It's in other people knowing Christ, the same Christ I've met. And if somebody else preaches and people get saved, great. If somebody preaches with bad motives and people get saved, great. If they preach with good motives and people get saved, great. It doesn't matter. Look at what he says in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Amen? My joy is in knowing Christ and letting other people know Christ, making him known to the world. But if his joy was wrapped up in getting that job, then the worst thing that can happen to him is somebody else getting the job. Man, we see this in churches all the time, right? Hey, that church is great over there. If you know, if you like watered down teaching and soft worship and those kind of things, and like preachers are so guilty of this. And if we're honest, because in our flesh and in our pride, yeah, we want God to work, but we want him to work through us. We want people in our community to know that, hey, he works through that God. Which one, that's not how God works. He works through this and our faithfulness to it. But imagine if your identity, if my identity was in being the successful church in town, then the greatest threat to us is every other successful church in town. But here's the deal, if your identity is rooted in knowing Christ and making him known, then there's only two kinds of people. There's people who don't know Christ and we're fighting for you, or there's people who know Christ and we're fighting alongside you. So if that other church in town is preaching Christ, we rejoice. They're allies for us with the gospel. If they're not preaching Christ, then we have a problem, and we're going to preach Christ to them so that they know Christ. If they're lost in the city, we're going to preach Christ to them. We're either fighting for you or we're fighting alongside you, but I'm never fighting against you unless you're preaching heresy. And then we pray that the Lord would expose it. Does that make sense? So how do we end? We need to wrap up. What is your joy rooted in? We're going to look at a couple more implications of this next week. Is your joy rooted in something that will fade away? Is it rooted in something fleeting? Is it rooted in something under the sun? Because here's the deal. If you fill in that blank, for me to live is blank. If it's anything under the sun, if it's a relationship status, if it's a you know, tax bracket, if it's a 401k achievement, whatever it is, then dying is loss. If it's to be a successful football player, then there's going to be a day when you're not a successful football player anymore. It's science. It's just not going to work out for you when you're older then dying is loss. If you put anything else in that blank, then when you die, it's gone. What is your joy rooted in? Is it in knowing Christ and making him known? Or is it in something under the sun? And the good news is that all of us can repent of whatever that idol is and turn to Christ. Lord, help me find my joy in you. Help me find my worth in you. Some of you need to do that for the first time. Lord, I realize this morning that I exist to know you. John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. You were made to know God, to enjoy him forever. That's where your identity is meant to come from. That's where your purpose is meant to draw from. That's where your joy is meant to be rooted in. You can start a relationship with Jesus this morning. And for the rest of us, And excuse the kind of the the wording of this question. It's meant to just go straight from the text. How has what has happened to you? Paul uses that phrase, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. How has what has happened to you served to advance the gospel? How has God used what's happened to you? Or better yet, how might God, how might the Lord want to use what has happened to you or what is happening to you right now to advance the gospel? The brokenness that you come from The loss of a loved one, if it's a parent or a spouse or a child. How might God want to use that, what has happened to you, to serve to advance the gospel? Because God can use any circumstance. In all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Not just the good moments. How is what has happened to you? Or how might God want to use what has happened to you to advance the gospel? The brokenness that you've navigated in your family. The ramifications of sin in your life before you came to know the Lord. Your past marriage struggles, your present marriage struggles, your present family struggles, the loss of your job, the great things, the announcement of your engagement, the announcement of your pregnancy. How might God want to use any of those things to advance the gospel? He can use it all. Let's be a church who leverages every moment. In every circumstance, not for our own gain, not for our own glory, but for the advancement of the gospel in this community, in our families, in the surrounding world. Amen? Amen. God, we come to you and ask for your grace. God, I know we don't do this perfectly, but what a beautiful picture. God, that one of your servants could be thrown in prison, and it only further advances what you're doing in the world to draw people to yourself. And God, I pray that that would be true of us. Thankfully, that we're not being arrested Regularly here in town. But God, we might face a little awkwardness with our family member to share the gospel. God, we might face a little resistance at work to share the gospel. But God, you long to use every circumstance in our lives for the advancement of your gospel. And God, that won't happen if our identity is rooted in something that's circumstantial. That won't happen if we're trying to find our joy in a circumstance. God, it'll only happen if our gaze is fixed on you and our mind is fixed on you and we trust that everything that happens in our lives is in your sovereign hand and you're working it all for the glory of yourself alone and for the joy of your people. So God, help us to be a people who follow after you in every circumstance and give you the glory in all things. You're the only one worthy of it. You're the only one who humbled himself and lived a sinless life and died an innocent death on a cross. He was raised to life so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So God, help us to bow the knee already and to open our mouths already and confess that you're Lord of our lives and you're good and you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond.